And now we turn our attention to the Word of God today. We'll be in James chapter 5. As we continue to look at the end, we just have this, and looks like, Lord willing, one more week left in the book of James, and we will finish this study on faith works, how our lives are affected um, really practically by the things of God that he does in our hearts. So today here in James chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18 as we consider the power of prayer in our lives today. Let's look at James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Father, we now ask that you would bless these next few minutes as we open your word today and we examine the power of prayer that you have given in our lives. Lord, we thank you for what a gift it is to come into your presence. Thank you that through Jesus Christ we can boldly come before the throne of grace. We can find mercy and grace and help in time of need. We ask that today you would use your Holy Spirit to open our hearts, to help us to understand the things that you have written here, that you would help us to apply these things to our own personal lives. God, we, we thank you that the Word of God isn't just general, but, but very specific through the work of the Holy Spirit, that you very pointedly show us what it is we need to change and how we need to change, and you give us the power and ability to do so. We ask today that you would give us hearts that are moldable in your hands, that are, that are open to what you have for us, and that we would truly not leave what we talked about here, but we would take it with us today. And we would see your work done in our hearts that we can make a greater impact in the world for you. In your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever experienced or had, the, had in your life real connection to make something happen? You know, perhaps, the old saying goes, um, it's not what you know, it's who you know, right? So maybe you, you've had the ability to, to help make a, a dream come true for someone else or maybe yourself, you know, because you knew somebody. Maybe you even use that phrase. Sometimes we even say it as a joke, right? Well, I know a guy right? The implication is, of course, that with one phone call or or text message, you can be in touch with the powers that be who can bring about whatever request it is you have. And we do, we get, we get some sort of satisfaction out of cultivating relationships that benefit us tangibly on this earth. And often it's just a self-satisfaction coming through that we're able to affect some change in our lives. And as great as it may feel, even making the difference in someone else's life, we have to understand that's only temporal. As a Christian, if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, 
and placing faith in him and him alone, you have access to the presence of the creator of the universe at any moment. This is far superior to any human connections that you may build in your lifetime. Yet how often do we downplay prayer and its benefits in our own personal lives? You know, maybe we won't do it verbally, but in our hearts and our minds, sometimes we think, you know, somebody says we should pray about that, and we think things like, well, what good is that going to do? James communicates to us in this passage that prayer is powerful, it is necessary, and it is vital in the life of a Christian. We must engage in it and take the actions necessary to keep the lines of prayer open between us and God. And what we see here in this passage is because Prayer is God's prescribed method of my personal and powerful communication with him. I must engage my heart with his that I may see God's will done on earth. And I think that uh, I read it somewhere, and I can't, I can't tell you who I read it, but I'll tell you it's not original with me. One of the best definitions of prayer isn't my will being affected in heaven, but God's will being affected on earth is what we pray for. And that means sometimes, by the way, that God has to, probably more often than we want to admit, God has to change us as we pray. And God works in our lives to see these things. So if we want to see God do great and mighty things, we have to, one, we have to spend time talking with him, but, but before we can even do that, we have to cultivate in our lives this relationship with God, that, that one that is consistent and one that, that we, do, we do spend time praying with him. And there's nothing between our hearts, our souls, and our Savior. Nothing between us and God that would keep us from entering the throne room and talking to him. So let's look at, at what prayer does in our lives and what does James mean by all of this. And we start in verses 13 through 15 by looking at this idea of the power of prayer over life's conditions. And James here in verse 13, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. As we live our lives here on this earth, we're going to face a variety of circumstances. I mean, you understand that, that even in a given month, week, day, or, early, or even hours, you can face a range of circumstances and emotions that go through your life. James calls on believers in every condition that we face in life, we are to have the same reaction, that is prayer. We are to constantly and consistently be going before our Heavenly Father because prayer is our communication with our Heavenly Father who is in control of all things. And as such, we, he is where we should go no matter what we face. And so James runs the gamut here with these descriptions. And the first one we see is, is prayer in the midst of suffering. Now, this word here, suffering, that, that we have translated from the Greek here, carries the idea of difficult circumstances and enduring evil treatment by others. And if you'll remember back at the beginning of James chapter 5, James has already addressed the conditions under which the believers in Jerusalem are living, and they're facing hardship and trouble and persecution from those who are without the church, specifically those who are rich. As he wrote, about in the beginning of this chapter, you know, they're persecuting God's followers. In the face of these things, believers are to run to God in prayer. As a Christian, 
understand that you will not live your life always on the mountaintop. Perhaps you have been surprised in your life as you faced hardship as a follower of God. We live in a broken, sinful world. And so because we live in a broken, sinful world, you and I are afflicted by the things that go on in our world just like anybody else. Just because you know the Lord is your Savior doesn't mean that you, that you are suddenly, you have none of that that goes on in your life. What you do have is a relationship with the sovereign God who's in control of all things. Further than that, we are troubled by those who cast aspersions on us for our faith. There are those who will cause trouble in your life for no other reason than you proclaim that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. It will happen. Now, maybe it doesn't happen so openly and so often here as it does in countries where worshiping God is illegal or there is another major religion that that country follows, but it does and will happen that you will face times like this in your own life. We wonder why we must endure hardship, and we wonder when it will end. We feel targeted and abandoned and unnecessarily afflicted in our own lives. And in these times, when these things happen, what is the reaction that we're tempted to take? We're tempted to sink into self-pity. The sin of self-focus is never far away from a Christian in hardship. If we are not walking with the Lord and we are not following him and looking to him and depending on him, it does not take long before we sit around and we sing the song, right? Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. I didn't plan to sing this morning, but there you go, okay? My mama will enjoy that one later when she listens to this. We're tempted to, 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 to tell our own woes, Right? To think about these things and why me, God, and why this, and don't you care? And don't the sin of self-pity and of self-focus and of selfishness is not far away, even from a Christian who is in hard times, who is struggling with things in their lives. We will plunge into the depths of despair and hopelessness in our lives. Why? Because we have taken our eyes off the one who is in control. In times of hardship and struggle. Our eyes, James says, should be turned upward to our Savior. And this isn't like a a check-in. Like, okay, well, I said my little prayers, so now God's going to do good things for me. I just, you know, I just checked it at the door. I just, you know, I said my prayers, and I can just go off and do whatever, and I can, now I can feel however I want to feel. No, this isn't a call of just, hey, I, I checked something off the list. What James is talking about is an all-out, complete, and utter dependence on the Lord in prayer. And here's the thing, if you and I in this life are waiting on another human to make us complete and whole or to bring us a feeling of satisfaction, we are looking in the wrong place. The only place that you will find true hope and true fulfillment and the the ability to go on in life is in God. No other person is going to do, no person is going to do that for you. They may even be the greatest spiritual leader you've ever known in your life. They may be one of the greatest blessings that God has ever given to you, but they are not God. God alone is the one who can get us through these things. The command of James is simple and direct. Are you facing hardship? Pray. Why are we to pray? 
Because we have the God of all comfort, peace, and hope who cares personally for you. We belong to him, and he longs for us to depend on him in all things. And we can do this because God uses all things in our lives for our good and his glory. It's really interesting when you begin to look at this word even here. Is anyone among you suffering? When you investigate the meaning of the Greek word suffering, this is what you find. It means to experience painful hardship or suffering that seems to be a setback, but really isn't. Hardships in our lives need not be times of setbacks, but times of greatest growth. Do you realize that if you look back over the history of the church, that the times the church grew greatest and the times the church grew strongest and the times that God did the mightiest work in the church is the time the church was persecuted. Because there's an all-out, utter dependence on God. And so God brings times of hardship and trouble in our lives to drive us to himself. To make us more like him. To make us more dependent on him. Individually, God uses these things as well as corporately. So in hardship, let us pray. Let us pray for God's grace to endure these things and his wisdom, as James talks about in James chapter 1 and verse 5, to know how to use your situation for his glory and your growth. And you know what? It's even fine for you to pray that God would remove the hardship from your life. There's a guy, you may have heard him before, his name is Paul, he's in the Bible, And he wrote, you know, 13 of the books in the New Testament. And in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, he writes about the affliction that God had placed in his life because of the thorn in the flesh. And he prayed three times that God would take this out of his life. He wanted it gone, whatever it was. And God told him very clearly and very plainly he was not going to do that. So what did Paul do? He sing, I'm not going to sing for you again, but he sings his little song, you know, that nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Or does, did, he, did he pout and mope and say, well, that's it, I'm going to throw in the towel? Did he go around and look for somebody else? No, you know what he said? Therefore, I will glory in my infirmities, in my weakness, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He realized that the thing that God had given him was for God's glory and his own good. And so we can pray that God would remove these things from our lives, but know that with God in control, whatever it is, we can endure in him. But James doesn't say that prayer is just limited to to hardships. I think oftentimes, though we may struggle in hardships, we understand we should be coming to God more in these hard times. but, But also, James says, we need to go to God in the good times as well. Secondly, James says that we are to praise in times of cheer of our lives. James says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. So, so the first part, you have the man who is suffering, you have one who is overwhelmed, and now you have one in, who is rejoicing, who is overjoyed in his life. Because just as we will experience times of trouble in life, we will also experience times of joy in our lives as well. And the God who sees us through suffering is the same God who bestows on our lives times of cheer and goodness. In these times, it's perhaps easy to no longer go to the Lord in prayer because we find our fulfillment, so to speak. We think we find our fulfillment in the good things we have going on in our lives. 
The real problem between both of these is we're living by our feelings. When things are not going well, we live a down and depressed life. When things are going great, we live high in the sky and happy. But if we approach all things in prayer, we can live not in our feelings, but in our knowledge of God and who he is. And we can live consistently in him. Because God's perspective is always the greatest perspective. When things are going well, let us offer, as James says, prayers of praise to our God. Literally, James calls for us to sing psalms. Do you realize that God intended for his people to sing? Corporate worship and singing is not a new construct of the American church. It is something that God prescribes in Scripture. It is certainly something we do here in our church. So, so I, I would like to ask you, what is your approach to singing in church? What is your approach to singing in your personal life? You know, over the years, especially in the last 20 years or so, Singing has become more and more a spectator sport. I'm probably just like anybody else. You know, I own a good pair of earbuds, and it's really great. You know, you stick them in, and you listen to to, to godly music or or things like that, and and we, we consume that a lot. But singing is never intended to merely be a spectator sport. It's something that we're to engage in. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you are a child of God, you are to sing praises to God. In our culture, and our society, we have become consumers of music and non-participants. And it leaks over into our churches. You know, we, we stand in our pews and we stick our hands in our pockets and we just, we just kind of wait for the song to be over. Okay, then I can sit back down and we can just go on with life. God longs to hear praises come from his people's lips. So let us sing, because singing is a prayer of praise. Praise helps us focus on God who has given us all things. And you think, well, that's great, but no one else wants to hear me sing. You're not singing for anybody else. You're singing for the Lord. And God very specifically said, make a joyful noise. He didn't say what the noise had to sound like, okay? So let us sing to God. It keeps our focus in times of good where it belongs, on on him and him alone. And as we walk with God and we give him all glory in all the good times, what we're doing, we're building a greater relationship to depend on him when things are hard. You build a relationship with God deeper and deeper in the times of good things just as much as you do when things are hard. Because then you look back in the hard times and you remember the goodness of your God. You say, he's worthy of my trust. But there are times when things are difficult and we do not know which way is up. And so what do we do in such a case? Well, James deals with this in the next couple of verses. Prayer, not only in times of, of suffering and in joy, but prayer in weakness. James says in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. 
And, and I want to preface this section because admittedly, this is one of the hardest passages in Scripture to work through. Um, this is because the more you dig in, the more you dig into these two verses, the greater the questions seem to grow. And, and many great men of God have differing views on this passage. And it's all based on interpretations of, of the Greek words here. Because these words don't have direct interpretations. They have varying definitions in our English language. And so this week, I spent time doing a lot of reading. I spent time doing, uh, look at the words myself. And so I'm going to give you what I feel best fits the context of what James is communicating here through the study of the scriptures. The focus of this passage for sure remains on prayer. So from the outset, we established that, that this, this, these two verses are a focus on, on prayer in our lives. God is the answer to everything in life, and our communing with him in prayer is vital to knowing and following his will. So the crux of this passage, the crux of these two verses, revolves around the word that we have translated in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? It's an interesting word, because literally in the Greek, the word means weak or feeble. In the Gospels... Over and over again, it's used to refer to someone who is sick. Jesus healed the sick. That's how often it's used in those passages. In fact, 18 times in the gospel, it's used to refer to physical illness. However, 14 times it is used in the New Testament to to refer to emotional or spiritual weakness. Now, this prominent use of spiritual weakness comes in the epistles after the life of Jesus Christ. All throughout Paul's epistles, especially, you see that's how it's used. And and in Hebrews, and there are a few exceptions. Some of those 18 aren't all in the Gospels. Some of them take place outside the Gospels. But they refer specifically to a specific person who is ill or sick. And so I believe that context is key to this passage because, as one author put it, a text without context is a pretext. So let us consider James's thrust in the closing words of James chapter 5. He has dealt with the hardships that Christians are facing from the rich. He has dealt with looking for the return of Jesus Christ, acting in a way that honors him. That includes what we looked at before speaking truth in James chapter 5 and verse 12. And now he deals with the importance of prayer in the life of a believer. And so sometimes this passage is is treated as a treatise on sickness. And it doesn't seem to fit the immediate context of the passage. Another clue comes later in this passage in verse 15. In verse 15, you have another word that's translated here as sick. But there's only one other instance of that word in the New Testament. It comes in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3, where the writer says, Lest you become, and here's the word, weary and discouraged in your souls. The use of of the word save in verse 15 also does not indicate healing. It is used in a minority of cases in the gospel to refer to physical healing, but most of the time it doesn't refer to that at all. So therefore... As I look at the passage and and I look at the context, it does not seem this is a passage exclusively on physical sickness. Now, perhaps physical sickness is part of the outward issues that these believers are facing. 
And some of them facing persecution certainly would have faced some hardships and maybe even physical ramifications. But what James is focusing on here is a condition of the heart. And so instead, I would offer you to this, that it would seem better that this is translated as anyone among you weak. And there is a, this word, in its close association to physical illness, it's not hard to understand what James means here. So I want you to think for just a minute, physically, have you ever felt so sick that you could not function? Okay? All the men nod their heads and the women say, no, we don't, we've never experienced that before, okay? You guys, you know what it's like when you get a cold, right? You just can't do anything, you know? Have you ever been so physically unable to do things that you wanted or needed to do? We've experienced these times of weakness in our lives physically because we're physically hindered. Now, have you ever felt that way spiritually? Have you ever lost your way spiritually in your struggle to follow the Lord in his ways? This happens even to believers, to Christians. We struggle daily with the flesh, and sometimes we wander from God, and we don't know which way is up. Or some hardship comes into our lives and begins to take over and we just, we don't know what to do. We struggle in those times to do things like read God's word, to trust him, to submit ourselves to him in prayer and to follow him in all things. Have you ever been in a position like that? I know I have. Where we just, we don't know what to do. We feel paralyzed. The question is, When this happens, what do we do? When it feels like we're dying on the vine of faith, where do we turn and what do we do? Well, James says here, this is where the the role of local church leadership comes into play in our lives. Verse 14 says, anyone among you sick or is anyone among you weak, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The weak, defeated believers are not to suffer in silence and feel alone, but they are to come to the elders of the church. And as you study that word elders throughout the New Testament, you would come to understand what it's talking about is the pastors of, of a church. Now, our church has one elder, one pastor, and some churches have, and ideally have multiple elders of a church. The elder is the term used in scripture talking about the role of a pastor as the leader of a church. And as God's under shepherds, pastors are responsible to care for the flock of their local body of believers. And in the case of a believer who is weak in their faith, who is struggling in their walk with the Lord, hope is to be found where? In the elders of their church. So you know what? This makes a great assumption about this Christian that James is talking about. And what is that assumption? That he is a member of a local body. That he belongs to a church. It's one of the greatest arguments that Christians belong in local assemblies. Because that is where the hope is found in times like this. This is the benefit of adjoining yourself to a church that you have placed yourself under that pastor's care and his concern in your life. You know that there is someone who is there who will hold you accountable and will uphold you before the Lord. And in these great struggles, you should be able to go to your pastor and find help. 
And it's interesting to note what that help is. Because we might assume that, you, you know, if we were writing it, go to your pastor and you'll find some counseling, you'll find some discipleship, and you'll find a, a, an exercise. No, what is the help that, you, that he'll do what? That he will pray. Now, does, does counseling or discipleship and those sorts of things that God has called us to do, does that have a role in our lives? Of course. But, it, but the pastor of a church doesn't change you. God has to do that. And the pastor isn't your source of spiritual strength. God is. So whatever we do begins and ends with God. Begins and ends with prayer and the word of God. The elders of a church are called to pray over this weak and feeble believer. They are to anoint him with oil and pray over him. And again, this is an interesting concept to us. Does that mean that when someone comes, we douse him with a little 10W30 and send him on his way? Well, of course not. It's not referring to, and the oil wouldn't have been motor oil. You understand that, right? I do know that, okay? I mean, I have some of it if you want to try it. But it's talking about, it'll be talking about olive oil. And it's not talking about the medicinal uses even of olive oil here, but an anointing uh, ceremonial fashion to bestow honor and refreshment and grooming. The weak and weary believers are to be refreshed through prayer to the Lord by the elders. Yes, it is possible then that they were to physically place oil on the head of the one they prayed for, though that is not where the power lies. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they physically had to do it, based on what we read in this passage. There is nothing sacred about the oil. There's nothing about that. Well, they're, they're healed. They're cured. Everything went away. The power lies where? In the prayer to the Lord. And not in the physical act of anointment. For that is what God honors here. What does God honor in verse 15? And the prayer of faith will save the weak. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. James says that the prayer offered in faith is what will save this one from his troubles. The weary one will find salvation from that in the prayer offered to God on his behalf. We have to understand that there is great power in the prayers of others for us. We should prioritize personal prayer, but let us never neglect the influence of others' prayers for us as well. And the more I I go through life, the more I am convinced of the power of prayer as I see God do great and mighty things around me in my personal life and the life of this church. For I know personally that I need to grow in prayer. It is therefore evident that our lives and churches cannot survive without prayers for one another. You need other people in your life praying for you as you offer prayers for your own things and, and the things of others. And as a pastor, as your pastor, if you come to church here, I do pray for you on a regular basis. It's my joy and my privilege to do that. And I also enjoy in my own personal life just the, 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 the blessings of God because you pray for our family. I know you do on a regular basis. I have stood in the lobby of this church dealing with things in my life and had another church member look me in the eye I say, can we just stop right now and pray for you? 
I love, you know, we ask that question, like they're going to say no, right? But what does it do? It shows us the importance of prayer in our lives. That it is vital that we undertake these things. And here we see another common outcome for one seeking out spiritual help and a a promise that's made. James says, if there is sin, it will be forgiven by God. Do do, Do understand that spiritual defeat and spiritual anemia can almost always be traced back to sin in our lives. Do you want to know why you feel defeated over and over and over again? It's because God is working away in your heart about something that you will not give to him. And Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. We cannot continue in sin and wonder, where did God go? Sometimes we, we say that in our lives. We say, oh, I, I'm praying, but God's not listening. And meanwhile, we're, we continue on in this sin that we have just harbored for, for, for ages. We make excuses for God has not gone anywhere. He's waiting for us to return to him. And we must make things right with him. David wrote in Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. You know what? A meeting with your pastor in such a case like this may very well reveal these things in further light. And so the thing that we must do then is confess and forsake these things before God. A pastor is not a priest. You understand a Christian needs no priest. Under the grace of Jesus Christ, we can go directly to God. But sometimes a pastor or a spiritual leader can be used to help us root these things out of our lives. God promises forgiveness and restoration of a right relationship with him. And if our trial should include physical maladies, God may see fit to use the prayer of his servant to bring about healing in our lives. In Sunday school this morning, we're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's talking about um, the, the, the taking of the Lord's Supper. He says there that people were sick and dying because of their sin in Corinth. So God may have physical ramifications on our lives that he takes out of our lives as we come back to him. But again, it is not the man who does the work, but God. And so prayer is the answer to all of life's conditions, to suffering, to joy, to the overwhelming feelings of spiritual despair. There is hope in the Lord and power in praying to him. But I think it is interesting too to note here that who is to go to who? Who is to seek out the the other? James is very clear that believer is the one who seeks out the elders. I think sometimes we, we sit around and we say things like, well, I just don't want to bother the pastor. I just don't want to I don't want to, I don't really want to get together. I don't want to make it right. I don't want to really, I want you to bother me, okay? Some of you less, no, I'm just kidding. Um, No. I want to know how I can help you. I want to know how I can pray for you. I want to know what I can do to help you grow spiritually. But James is very clear. It's the responsibility of that one in that church to come to the leader of that church, to seek out this help in these things. Because, 
your pastor is just a person. Believe it or not, you know, God doesn't like shine a little light down and tell me everything that everybody's struggling with. We have to realize this is a community of believers. Prayer is to be the norm for believers with one another. And not only is it the, the answer of all of our heart's conditions, it's also the power of prayer is also rooted in our heart's condition. The power of our prayer, the ability of God to work through these things is rooted in what's going on in your heart and my heart too. So we're to have open hearts. James says in verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Sin always affects our prayers. When God feels so far away, there is often a reason. We so easily step out of fellowship with God, entertaining in our lives those things which are wrong and sinful. We try to explain it away all we want, but the answer lies in one thing, eradicating sin from our hearts with the help of God. And so, in order to enjoy ongoing fellowship with God and to see the power of prayer fully in effect, James calls for confession and prayer amongst the body. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. John MacArthur wrote in his commentary on James, Sin seeks to remain private and secret, but God wants it exposed and dealt with in the loving fellowship of believers. The worst thing that you and I can do is hide our sin, explain it away, or try to find someone who will tell you what you want to hear. Those are our common reactions to sin. We'll just hide it, or we'll just explain it away, or, you know what, we'll go talk to somebody, and they'll tell us it's okay, and then we'll be all right. The best thing you and I can do with sin is deal with it head on the way God wants us to. It's scary, it's uncomfortable, and frankly, it's not done as often as it should be. Instead, we let it fester for days and weeks and months, sometimes years, and then we wonder, why do I feel so spiritually weak all the time? Instead of bottoming out, Make things right between you and the Lord and whoever else is involved. That's why we're weak. Confession of sin, when James says confess your sins to one another, isn't something to glorify our sin. It isn't a time to air dirty laundry or make ourselves feel better. It's a time of being honest. You know what confession is? Confession is saying the same thing about your sin that God says. Confession of sin, then, who does it involve? You the Lord, and whoever you've wronged. That's what confession of sin involves. Now, perhaps it involves someone else whose help you are seeking in accountability in those things. Sometimes there are sins that we struggle with that we need help with, and so maybe we go to our pastor, our, our parents, our um, spiritual mentors, and we seek out accountability and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. I made it right with God, but I need your help. Would you point me to the scriptures? Would you hold me accountable for these things? Is again, a part of the relationship of the church to one another. Because God's church is made up of redeemed sinners, and you and I fail one another more than we care to admit. And in humility, we must confess these things to one another, seeking forgiveness from others and from the Lord. 
And again, we have a word here with more than one meaning, and, and, and he will be, it says, healed. This word can speak of physical as well as spiritual healing throughout the scriptures. God's forgiveness makes a believer spiritually whole once again. And our relationship with God is unhindered as we confess and forsake our sins before him. It is important to note that our spiritual well-being is not dependent on another's forgiveness. Because there may be times that you, God has worked in your heart about something in your life. And God has showed you something that you may write with another person. And you go to that person and you honestly confess your sin. Don't try to excuse it away. And they want nothing to do with it. If you have done what is right before the Lord, that's all you can do. And we don't treat that person in bitterness or in anger or, or, or anything like that. But we continue to show them the love of Christ. Even though it is discouraging and disheartening. Our hearts must be open before the Lord and others. Our heart's condition has great bearing then on our prayers. And when we are right with God, we can see great effectiveness in prayers. James says that the the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. God's throne is open to his children. He hears their prayers. And James says they are effective. The power of prayer belongs not to the spiritually elite, not to a specific class of Christians, nor to ones that God likes the most. But James says it belongs to the righteous. And who is righteous? The righteous are the ones who have placed their faith in Christ and live in fellowship with him. So positionally, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you are declared righteous before God. You have all you need in Christ to stand before God in boldness with your prayers. You have the Holy Spirit residing in you as a Christian that you may live in a way that honors God. You have access to God's grace and mercy to find forgiveness of sin and be in fellowship with him that your prayers may be effective. As one author said, weak prayers come from weak people. Strong prayers come from strong people. And what's the difference between a weak and a strong person? One who walks with the Lord and one who doesn't. Do you want to see power in prayer? Walk with God. Do you want to see his desires become your desires that you may live out his will? Then give up your sin and confess it to him. Do you want to be moldable in the plan of God? Then give everything in your life over to God alone and place him above all else. And when you follow the Lord and consistently walk with him, you will be surprised what he will do. He uses normal everyday Christians to do wonderful, extraordinary things in prayer. And to this end, James illustrates this point with an example of the power of prayer in verses 17 through 18. We have here in verse 17, an ordinary man. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Now, if you follow the the New Testament, you would find that Elijah is kind of a hero amongst the people of Israel. He's, he's one that's held in high esteem in the nation there because he was God's man during a time of great apostasy among God's people. The wicked Ahab and Jezebel were in control, and the worship of God was far from the norm. Instead, the worship of idols is what was promoted. 
And so God used Elijah in incredible ways to perform one miraculous event after another. And we read these things in 1 Kings, and I think we're tempted, we're tempted to think sometimes, man, I wish I was a spiritual superhero who could just make things happen and be awesome, right? And God would write about me. And we forget that Elijah is just a human being like everybody else. In fact, James says he had a nature like ours, talking of his feelings, his passions, his affections, his infirmities. Elijah was just an ordinary man that God used in extraordinary ways. In fact, when you read in the Old Testament the the account of Elijah, this is what you would find. He was afraid of Jezebel. He lived in fear at one point. He became depressed at the lack of godliness he saw. He was hungry and he was lonely and felt like he was an outcast. See, God doesn't reserve his work for the spiritually elite, but for those who will depend on him. Because we get this idea in our mind that there are like, there are normal Christians and there are awesome Christians. But before God, all that matters is Jesus Christ. And of all the things James could have pointed to in Elijah's life, he pointed not to, to some works or, or this or that or this miraculous thing he did. What did he point to? He pointed to his prayer life. He pointed to his communing with his God. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. This is an extraordinary work of prayer that God did through Elijah. Drought was a common form of, of judgment that God brought among his people. And Israel is an, is an agricultural nation, primarily. And so it's easy for us to understand, like any nation, but especially an agricultural nation like Israel, drought is, is, is a problem. Because then you can't grow your crops, you can't feed your animals, your family's going to start to starve. It's just going to cause all kinds of issues. And here... We find that you would find in the life of Elijah, there was a drought on the land of Israel. And now we learn the cause of that drought. What was it? It was Elijah's prayers. And we're not told of this instance of prayer in Scripture. But it is recorded that a drought did come upon Israel during the time of Elijah. God's man, therefore, sought God's will to be done. See, God's will... Very clearly stated in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, especially as you get into Deuteronomy, God's will is very clearly stated for his people that if they stray from God and if they give themselves to idols and if they will not follow him, that he will judge them. And one of the things he mentions is in things like drought. And why did he do that? That they would return to him. So apparently Elijah prayed for such judgment before his declaration before King Ahab in 1 Kings 17.1, and Elijah the, Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be no dew nor rain these years except at my word. That's a pretty bold statement. It comes from a man who knew his God. 
Elijah prayed powerfully and effectively, expecting God to work as he prayed for the will of God to be done. And at the end of three and a half years, when God had shown himself strong over Baal at Mount Carmel, Elijah then prays for God's hand of blessing again and for rain to come. And once again, God heard and answered Elijah's prayers. God uses his people and their prayers to bring about, as we said, his will on the earth. And we understand That it is not God who works on our schedule, but we that work on his and submit our wills and our plans to him. And as we pray to him, pouring out our hearts for personal requests or those of others, we can expect them to answer him in his time. And they may not always be the answer we thought it was going to be. And very often they're not in the time we thought it should happen. But God does answer prayer. In the case of Elijah, even the answer for for rain to return did not come immediately, but over a period of time in one day. But one thing is for sure, and one thing we see in the life of Elijah is that prayer is powerful. It changes us, and it comes before the throne of our almighty God. And it is available to all who belong to God. Because prayer is a prescribed, God's prescribed method of my personal and powerful communication with him, I must engage my heart with his that I may see God's will done on earth. God has given us an incredible gift. The ability to come into his presence in prayer. No matter the circumstances we find ourselves in, we are called on and expected to pray. In times of joy and cheer, let us offer praise and thanksgiving to our God. Let us keep the bountiful things that God gives us in full perspective, recognizing him as the author of all these things in our provider. In times of hardship and struggle, let us run to God because he is the source of all comfort, peace, and hope. He is the one who is in control, and he is the one who can help us find solace in the storms of life. Let us turn inward self realize that turning to inward self-pity will not help us find the heavenly perspective we need on these things. And in times when it is too much, let us find help from the spiritual leaders in our lives. It would be my, my privilege to spend time praying with you, interceding with God on your behalf. The good shepherd, Jesus Christ, is our hope and stay. And if you come here looking for help, I would love to point you to him. Prayer is available to all who are righteous, James says. This begins with the standing of declared righteousness in Jesus Christ. And if you have come to God through faith in Jesus, you have been declared righteous. It also means then maintaining a walk with God that confesses and forsakes sin on a regular basis. You can see, do God, you can see God do amazing things in your life through prayer. But he can also transform you more and more into the image of himself. God promises to mold our will to his as we seek him. And you will be amazed at the answers he will bring to you as you pray to him. So I implore you to seek his will, to walk in his ways, and to seek his face in prayer. Father, we thank you for the word of God that you have given us. 
that is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword as it divides our hearts, as it searches us out, as it shows us who you are and who we are in light of who you are. And Lord, we ask today that you would do a mighty work in our lives through your word. We have seen what an amazing thing you have given us in the ability to come before you in prayer. That we can just talk to you like we do anyone else, but realize that you're not just anyone else. You're our sovereign creator. You're our holy Lord. You are our almighty God. Lord, we, we confess that we struggle with that. We struggle even as Christians to walk in a way that would honor you. We entertain sin in our lives. We, we have things that, that we feel are more important to, to our lives, and we hold on to these things in a sinful way. Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts of these things. Would you make us ready to change them? Would you root these things out? Would you give us the courage and the boldness to make right the wrongs that you have been working in our hearts for so long? Would you do a mighty work in us? God, if we're going to see a mighty work done in the world we live in, it's got to start in the hearts of your people. And we ask that you would make us so uncomfortable with our sin that we can't help but get right with you. We would give you the glory and the praise for these things. Lord, I pray for my friends who are here today. I don't know what struggles they brought with them here today. I don't know what everything they're going through. I pray that you would minister grace to their hearts today. To the one who may be here who doesn't know you as Savior, who has really wrestled with these things, would you give him the courage to speak to someone? To the Christian who has nursed a sin longer than they can remember, to give them the boldness and the courage to find help. To the one who is experiencing great joy in their life, would you give them the perspective of all good things coming down from the Father of lights? To the one who is so tangled up and doesn't know which way is up, would you give them grace? Help us to be able to help them, point them to you. Or we ask that you would Help us to see mighty things done through the work of prayer in our lives. We ask your blessing as we go from this place. Would you continue to use your word in our hearts this afternoon? Help us to make whatever it is, whatever changes you've you've impressed on our hearts, help us to make these things for you, in you, for your honor, your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.